what the entero-mammary pathway is, it's really a connection between the gut and the mammary system. Did you know that the pig's microbiota has more than 400 species of fungi and bacteria, yielding approximately 10 times more cells than those in the pig's body? These microbes are at the nexus of health and productivity as they communicate with each other and with the pig's organs and systems. Filio, Pylosoph, is committed to pushing the boundaries of animal health and nutrition and well-being to better nourish and feed our world. United with our partners, we are key influencers in the quest to discover, define, and manipulate the pig's microbiome to significantly improve pig lifetime health and productivity. This podcast series is provided to help increase your understanding of these exciting and thought-provoking topics. Welcome to today's Filio Pig Microbiome Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Lockmiller, Senior Swine Technical Services Manager for North America. Thank you for joining us today for this discussion of new frontiers in the pig microbiome, physiology, and well-being. Appreciate everyone joining us today. We're privileged to be joined by Dr. Laura Greiner and to discuss some of the interesting research that Laura and her team are doing with enteral mammary transfer and how that relates to the pig microbiome. Laura, thanks again for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here with you today, Joe. People probably know um, know you or know a bit about you. You're you're also a podcaster yourself and and uh, widely recognized as an expert across the industry, um, both nationally and globally. But if you wouldn't mind, could you take just a few minutes and talk about your current position and maybe what some of your current research interests are? Absolutely, be happy to do that. So currently, I am an assistant professor here at Iowa State University. I've been here for approximately four years. Uh, prior to that, I was in production research where I spent about 13 years working for Carthage Veterinary Service and Carthage Innovative Swine Solutions. Uh, most of that time, my research was, was pretty diverse. Uh, sound nutrition is my passion, but it was doing health and uh, wean to finish and all kinds of great uh, studies. So when I came to Iowa State, um, my role is a little bit divided. I'm 50% teaching, and I spend that time with my undergraduate students. So I really get a chance to introduce a lot of people to the swine industry. Uh, we go out to the barns, we get to play with the pigs and interact with the sows and the finishing hogs. Um, and then the rest of my time is divided between research and extension. And so currently um, our research focus still continues to be with that sow and that piglet. So I use it a little bit loosely, but what I'm trying to do here is focus on sow livability. And how that happens is, of course, as a gilt, a young female, how do we develop her up and bring her into the herd? Um, but in addition to that, one of the passions that I've had is really how do we influence the piglet as well while it's still on the sow? And so that kind of goes along with, you know, all the things that we do with the sow obviously has an impact on her offspring. So that's really the focus of my research here at Iowa State. Um, currently, I have four graduate students with me. I'll bring on a fifth here in a couple of weeks, actually. Um, my graduate students' focuses really kind of depend on where their passions want to take them. I don't uh, really prescribe trials to them. So I have two individuals that focused on guilt development. 
one was looking at lameness and fatty acids. So looking at N3 and N6 ratios and how that might influence joint health. Um, I had a student looking at vitamin A and its influence on disease and immune function as well as mammary development pre-puberty. Um, then the other students are focused on things like compensatory gain during a refeeding process as well as looking at environmental questions with sustainability and then also just doing some standard sound nutrition work like branch chain amino acid ratios and what that means in lactation. So I know it's maybe a little bit longer than what you were hoping for, but hopefully that gives everybody a background as to what we're currently looking at here. So I think that's really interesting and it sounds like it's a lot of fun because it's actually a, a very nice broad spectrum applied uh, nutrition program with then some uh, discovery basic uh, research elements blended into it as well. So so pretty neat. I mean it's it is impressive. I don't I don't mean that just as a as a flippant comment. It is impressive. So thank you. Um one of the things that we're going to talk about today goes back to this idea of how we, you know, how the sow influences the offspring and the offspring development and its lifetime potential. And when you were remarking about that, and as I was thinking about this um, earlier today, I was reminded of when I was in graduate school, and I was I was probably in graduate school about the same time that you were, um, was the this idea that, you know, weaning weight influenced lifetime uh, growth performance of market animals. And then we've discovered that it's not so much weaning weight as it is birth weight. And now we're discovering that it's not only birth weight, but it's how are we setting up the um, the immune the immune system of the pig and and its microbiome and and all of these uh, factors that that we're just now and so it's a fun field to think about how it's developed over the years and where it's going in the future. It's it's pretty exciting. So the the paper we're talking about today is you've recently published a paper in. Translational Animal Science, um, talking about the enteromammary transfer pathway. Can you explain just for a minute what that means and and then a little bit about your background about why that was interesting? Yeah, absolutely. So the enteromammary pathway has actually been published quite a bit in different species. So we we see it in humans, we've seen papers in cattle, but it was really hard to find something that definitively said, yes, this exists in pigs. We assumed it did, but we didn't really uh, have that information in hand when we started down this road. And so what the enteromammary pathway is, it's really a connection between the gut and the mammary system. And what happens for that sow is um, pre-pharaoh or right while she's milking, her immune cells are actually migrating into the lumen of the intestine and they are grabbing organisms from the intestine, they are carrying them through the bloodstream and then depositing them into the mammary gland where they are going into either the colostrum or the milk. And they're going in as live organisms. So again, when we think about microbiome establishment, this would be a really key piece, right? We've got the whatever is in the sow being migrated over to the piglet. Where this really became interesting to me was in my prior life while I was working in production, um, we continue to struggle with diseases like rotavirus C. And again, we still deal with that in the industry. It's not solved yet. 
But one of the things that bothered me the most was we had piglets being born and within a couple of hours, they were shedding the virus. They were showing clear diarrhea signs. You know, everything was there that would indicate we had a rotavirus C exposure. When you think about that process, to me, it seems it would be pretty difficult to pick that much up from the environment quickly enough to get that type of response. We know rotavirus C doesn't move through the placenta. So it was kind of like, okay, well, how else is it getting there? So in doing some of this research and trying to figure out basically solutions to rotavirus C, I ran across the paper in humans for this enteromammary pathway. What's intriguing about this pathway is really the fact that um, not only can it bring in good organisms, but it can also potentially carry bad. So in humans, cytomegalovirus, HIV, some of these other organisms also travel this pathway. So that's kind of where we're at, was one, we wanted to establish the pathway exists. And then now our next step, we have a couple of them really, our next steps are to look to see if we can find rotavirus C being moved in this process. And then also to see if we can manipulate this maybe in a positive way. So when you talk about these different organisms, I mean, it's not just small size organisms. It's not just small viruses. I mean, we're we're talking fairly complex bacteria and it's a it's a it's a relatively uh, semi non-selective pathway is that right yeah that's correct um, from everything that we can read in in the literature it is fairly non-selective when we profile those organisms in the study that we did uh, we're finding organisms like lactobacillus we're finding organisms from the clostridium group um, we're finding ruminococcus, and so we are finding substantial bacterial populations that we would expect to find um, in the, the gut of the piglet, but we're finding this in the blood of the sow as well as in the milk of the sow plus her own feces. So we know that it's being moved um, over to the, to the piglet in this way. Okay, okay. So, so then thinking about that and thinking about development of the gut of that piglet, um how much of that is when when we think then we think about okay populating the gut of that piglet and the potential transfer of pathogens is most of the concern then in the first 48 hours after the pig is born before the before the gut of the pigs the you know before those gaps between the enterocytes close or is this a is this something that is relevant and can, and of interest uh, throughout the entire lactation cycle that's a great question, Joe, and it's really of interest through the entire lactation cycle. Um, we do know, for example, uh, ruminococcus organisms, they can be, it's quite a unique relationship. They can actually be found in the lung, but actually what we're able to do, uh, Dr. Maria Peters at the University of Minnesota has actually documented that during a mycoplasma infection, Animals that have higher levels of ruminococcus in their gut re, uh, have fewer lesions in their lungs. And so while we know some of these organisms may move out of the lumen, again, we're looking at trying to establish them in the lumen. So if the, if the tight cell junctions close, we still want to have the ability to pass organisms through, through the milk to the piglet, right? Because at some point, if, if the sow gets exposed to a mycoplasma infection, we want to have some protection beyond antibodies going to those piglets. 
When we think about gut cell closure, to me, that's more the immune cells. So we know that there are certain immune cells that are specific from dam to her piglets. And we wanna make sure that we have the ability for those to pass through before those cells close. And so that's related to colostrum, but we know that there's potential to continue this protection in a different way with this microbiome post-closing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are there, so when you looked at the different organisms that are transferred through this enteral mammary transfer, and, and as you stated, it's an internal transfer. It's not a transfer where um, any of these organisms are external of the sow's body. They're going through the internally through into the colostrum and then into the piglet or into the milk and then to the piglet. Um, there, the, so there were a number of potential um, pathogenic organisms. Mm -hmm. So you you observed mycoplasma in your trial. Are there other, and and so you're interested in rotavirus, but you, but you haven't gotten to that point yet, at least in the trial work. Are there other organisms that are of concern to you? That are pathogenic transfer? There are always there are always organisms, right? And I think that's what's intriguing about this is particularly when we look at the human literature, I think it, it can open up a lot of doors as to what else are we moving in this way. And the answer is, is we don't know. Uh, one of the things that's interesting to me that, that we observed in the study was we looked at parity one and we looked at those gilds separate than the mature sow. And we saw different populations of some of these organisms. And what's interesting is, is that um, some of these organisms can actually be protective in other species and in other organisms, they can actually be harmful. And so if we look at poultry, for example, there are certain organisms that can lead to necrotic enteritis. And so we actually saw a higher population of those organisms in the gilt litters relative to the sows. And so the question is, is, is that guilt already predisposed to potentially passing down organisms in the microbiome that could make her pigs more susceptible, right? We know as the animal matures and, and ages, that microbiome shifts, and that's in fact what we saw. Um, but what was interesting in that study was the gilts were the ones that were exposed to mycoplasma, right? So they were coming into a sow farm, they were naive, they exposed them in the gilt developer, so they just had a high level of maternal antibody, of course, floating at the time of, of farrowing. And they actually had a higher level of that ruminococcus in their microbiome relative to the sow, which again makes sense, right? She was recently exposed, so she's gonna have higher levels, but we also know that she's carrying higher levels of potential organisms that could be harmful in high populations, right? That's the unique thing about the microbiome is it's all about balance, right? Yeah. We know these ex organisms exist. They're most of the time they're probably fine, but um, sometimes if that balance gets off, then they could become harmful. And so that's really that question, right? If she's passing those to the piglet, she's probably passing them in higher concentration. And then all we need is that tipping scale to then potentially trigger a, a diarrhea event in those piglets. Yeah. Yeah. With this, um, with this idea of this enteral mammary transfer, and you did mention, you mentioned the ruminococcus, you mentioned the lactobacilli, which are both part of that uh, fiber digesting Formicutes family, mm -hmm. um, which seems to be the 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 family which is um, most closely related with positive um, long-term health events. Um, you know, for example, so you mentioned uh, ruminococcus, and we and um, 
we both know ruminococcus is is associated with short chain fatty acid production, fiber digestion, and which is also then directly associated in some other trial work. You mentioned Maria's work with this uh, ability to to be less susceptible to respiratory infection. Um, so when we look at when we look at that and and we look at the immune transfer. Um, I thought it was interesting in your paper that you were able to draw some pretty good correlations between the fecal microbiome of the sows and the gilts, and then the microbiome in their blood, uh, as well as in the colostrum, because the fecal microbiome, you have to measure it somewhere, but most of that, I, I would say most of that transfer is occurring with what's occurring in the, um, the mucosal microbiome of the small intestine. Is have you been able to find any relationship, or is there is there work that you're aware of that's been done that that most firmly gives us some correlations between changes in the fecal microbiome and that mucosal microbiome? Because it's obviously impossible to sample the the mucosal microbiome in, in a in a productive live animal. So. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a great question. I've been asked that multiple times, and, and I'm not one to argue with it. That would be a gap in, in our paper as well, is that we needed that mucosal piece because everybody understands that what's coming out uh, the back end is probably different than what's staying in, in terms of population um, diversity and so forth. And there are some papers out there that do talk about those differences. I don't have them on hand, but it would be something I'd encourage the readers to look at if they're interested. But yeah, that, I think that's the great gap, if you will, as is, is to what's in that mucosal region. And, and what we tried to do in that paper was we took those three locations that we sampled and looked for organisms that were found in all three to verify the pathway. I think, you, Joe, you'd be right. It'd be really interesting to be able to sample the lumen as well, because I have a feeling we'd probably find a few more organisms or more families that actually were being uh, passed through that, that we just don't see because we didn't sample that that lumen. Yeah. So is there, um, so just thinking about potential implications of this and and thinking about, um, you know, maternal transfer and, and effects on the offspring, had a conversation here recently with Todd Calloway and we talked about dysbiosis and the effects that that would have. What are your what are your thoughts on things when we get um, disruptive events, the dysbiosis of the of the microbiome in the sows? Um, any any thoughts on how that could affect this this maternal transfer? Is there anything in uh, in what you've studied in the background, whether in human literature or other species? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that dysbiosis is certainly a concern. Right, anytime we have an event. Even if we're changing diets, we could potentially disrupt that microbiome for good or bad. And so I think that that's definitely a concern. How we get that uh, diversity back in, in balance will be something that I think we're all going to continue to struggle with. Right? We, we certainly have explored prebiotics and probiotics and, and trying to use those to try to help get that uh, gut back in balance. But that's one of the big challenges we have. And in fact, that's where we're headed next. Um, there's some work done by Kansas State, Megan Niemeyer, that was done with uh, looking at fecal transplant work. And that's exactly where we're going to head. 
Um, this fall, we're going to start a project where we try to produce a similar microbiome in the gilt from the sow. And, you know, if we're successful, then I think that's going to be one of those keys to try to help that dysbiosis and try to, to reestablish that gut in a way that we think is healthy and um, better for that animal. So when you're trying to do that in the gilts, are you trying to do that through a fecal transfer or how are you, uh, what, what's your mechanism for trying to manipulate that, that incoming gilts microbiome? Yeah, so we, we try to look at a lot of human literature. Um, we are not going to go through the process of, of doing a high level of antibiotics to clear out what's there um, because that's not practical, right? So I, a lot of my research, I, I take the science and I want to make sure we put it in a way that, that production could do it if, we, if we're successful. And so um, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be identifying sows that we've identified as being prolific um, with good livability and then also you know, good piglet performance. So number of pigs weaned and, and so forth. We're gonna collect feces from those sows and we're going to um, do some isolation work in some chambers. And then we're going to take that uh, bacteria and we're gonna encapsulate it um, or we're potentially going to dose it. We haven't decided yet, which is going to be easier in the gestation barn, but either we'll uh, orally dose it or we'll put it into capsules. And we're gonna do that multiple times a day for multiple days, um, again, which I know is not production, not ideal production at the moment, but we're going to be closer than maybe doing the antibiotic process. Um, right. So that that's kind of the path we're heading down. Is we'll do that um, probably five and three weeks pre-farrow. So again, trying to think about how do we do a natural plant exposure event in the south farm, uh, and how do we manipulate that that gut. Um, it might need to be earlier than that, right? We know it might need to be even eight weeks, but um, or twelve. But we're going to start with three and five and see what we what we see. This podcast has been brought to you by the experts at Filio by Lasaf, one of the largest primary fermentation organizations in the world. We are driving research and nutritional innovation to support swine health using natural and sustainable methods. So that's pretty interesting. Um, and I'm thinking along the lines of that, I'm also thinking of a conversation we had recently where we talked about the frustrations in production nutrition. Um, you mentioned that you had, I think, uh, two or three different sow farms and one farm, even though they were all in the same geographical region, similar health status, one farm really struggled. The, the wean pigs really struggled with the hemolytic E. coli. And as we were talking about this enteromammary transfer and trying to manipulate that, um, we went along the lines of you discovered at that time that that there was a probiotic that helped you. Mm -hmm. And we talked about the frustration of trying to manipulate the immune system of those animals, um, but but really feel like we're as nutritionists, we're kind of casting about in the dark. So is this is this work? And as you work to, you know, try to you know, improve the immune system of the gilts. Is there is there any of this work that also goes along with how do we improve the ability to um, maybe apply some of these probiotics and, and be a little bit more prescriptive in, in what we're trying to do? Absolutely. I think there's a lot of a lot of pieces here, Joe, that we don't know. Um, you mentioned the the hemolytic E. coli, and we also struggled with a farm that had a rotavirus C issue in in the in the piglets while they were still on the sow, massive death loss. 
Um, and we did, we, we applied a probiotic, it took about eight to 12 weeks, and then that regulated and the rotavirus C disappeared. So again, you know that it's related to the microbiome. You know that we had a dysbiosis event, even though the sows weren't clinical, the piglets were. And so, you know, there, there are signs like that that tell us, yeah, we need to do a better job at trying to understand this. Some of the things that really intrigued me when you get into production, um, we had litters, you could have two litters side by side and one litter would be scouring and the other litter would be perfectly fine. And we would just take those piglets and we would swap them, right? So litter for litter, moms would stay where they were, but we just flipped the piglets. The piglets that were healthy and weren't scouring, never scoured. And the piglets that were scouring dried up immediately. So again, if, if we think it's all related to colostrum, we're wrong, right? Because this is clearly happening, happening post gut closure and post colostrum. Yeah. And, and so understanding this micro microbiome and understanding how we can use measures like probiotics to fix a dysbiosis event that the baby we're not recognizing with the sows, but it's happening with the piglets or even better understanding this microbiome and, and how we can use it to our advantage during periods of high scours. I think will bring you know huge advantages to our production systems. So when when you think about that, we're a few years away, uh, probably more than a few, honestly, from being able to do this this type of pre prescriptive characterization of a herd's microbiome, and then and then what changes do we know that we can make that would affect that? But with this work that you're going to do with these gilts, trying to more rapidly mature their their immune system and their microbiome to that of a mature sow. Uh, obviously, you'll be characterizing the microbiome of those gilts. Um, in the work that you did here with your with the enteral mammary transfer work, you characterize it as well. You found that about 80% of the fecal samples, I'm trying to remember correctly, but I think it was about 80% of the fecal samples were, were high in uh, the Formicutes family. Mm -hmm. And then there was a couple of others there, and 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 then members of the Formicutes family were also found in relative abundance in the colostrum, as well as in the bloodstream. Is that, I, I mean, is that part of the hope that you're doing with these gilts, these incoming gilts, is that trying to, and and the reason I'm focusing on the Formicutes family is that's you know, when we look at probiotics like Bacillus subtilis, um, that's part of that family. You look at ruminococcus, lactobacilli, all of these fiber digesting or these short chain fatty acid producing uh, bacteria, they're all part of this family. So that that Formicutes family or members of that family seem to be pretty critical to the long term health of the microbiome and, and of the sow and the offspring. It is So that's part of the focus or is that am I missing am I missing something there in, in where you're trying to go with this? No, I think that is part of the focus, right? We know those have some significant advantages. Um, you know, we're also kind of watching Clostridium stricto uh, senso one, Clostridium senso stricto one. Sorry, I think I have it backwards today, but sure. we're watching that one very closely because that one can be beneficial and it can also be harmful. Uh, we know particularly in chickens, we can see necrotic enteritis if that's out of balance. Yeah. And so we can focus on the Formicutes family, but the reality of it is, is it's it's the whole population and how they're related to one another. And so we'll be sampling and we'll be watching, right, and seeing what shifts and what doesn't shift. Because I think that's one of the questions we've always had with probiotics is um, sometimes we see that if we give too much of a probiotic, 
we actually have a negative impact, right? We lose feed intake. Yeah. And, and so we have to be careful with that dysbiosis. And we really need to understand it better as to what does a, a healthy population look like? Um, the other thing I was going to throw in there, Joe, is you mentioned that we're years off from really using the information in a beneficial way. And I want to challenge the industry a little bit because it's been probably eight years or so. I sat next to an individual who worked in the poultry industry and we were talking about the microbiome and we were talking about um, their use of probiotics in, in the poultry barns. And they would just go in and sample the litter in the barns. And as that population changed, right, as one organism started to climb, they knew it was time to change their probiotics. And so they had a probiotic rotation that they would use, you know, throughout the year. And every barn was different, right? So again, this is where we have to think individually, not collectively, and treat them, treat each sow house as its own population, because that's what it is, right? It's its own community. It has its own organism and, and microbiome setup, but we can probably start to take some of that information that the poultry industry is using and start that process as we continue to learn more and more about, you know, what's ideal and, and what's impactful. I think that's, I, I like that. And, and one of the reasons that I like that is I'll be critical. So we're a probiotic supplier. So I'm going to be critical of ourselves along with everybody else in the probiotic industry. We have not done a good job uh, characterizing the microbiome of the pigs when we go out and do a trial, when we sponsor trial work. Um, and, and I look at that and I go, I think that's a gap that we're missing because one of the real criticisms, and it's a justifiable criticism that probiotics have in swine nutrition, is, is sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And you're asking people to invest in something that provides um can provide an inconsistent return on investment mm -hmm. and so i really like that and to me that's encouraging this idea that that we could go sample now the sample the um you know the the take some fecal swabs in a barn or something try to characterize that barn because then um we can get closer to this idea of prescriptive nutrition mm -hmm. um so the the question that I would have for you is is that when we look at applied nutrition research, maybe how much are we missing? Um, whether it's probiotic research, prebiotic research, or just nutrition research in general, should we be characterizing the the microbiome, at least the fecal microbiome of the animals that we're studying, especially when we look at something like distillers grains or other high fiber ingredients that potentially can impact yes. that, that microbiome? Yeah, the answer is yes. And, yeah. you know, and to be honest, Joe, you know, 10 years ago, we were talking microbiomes and like, oh, you know, this is kind of one of those put on the side. It's, it's there, but maybe it's not that important. It's taken me a while to kind yeah. of come around to this idea of, of how important it is. But um, the answer is yes. Anytime we're doing any type of nutritional manipulation, we really need to understand what we've changed. Uh, we can pick on probiotics, right? I've seen it for years. Um, you know, we'd be struggling with the E. coli challenge, but yet we didn't really know what we were dealing with. And so maybe the probiotic that we were using wasn't really designed to deal with that E. coli. But if you switch to a different one, it works. Um, so some of it's our testing, right? We have to be willing 
to really do some some true sequencing and some true testing, not just some general, let's run a couple PCRs and see what we find. Um, the other thing that we really need to think about is you know, how that also impacts the enzymes that we're using. Because I think, again, you know, as we change the microbiome, we change what's digested and what needs additional support for digestion. And so we have to really think holistically, right? We're, we're not just feeding something to an animal. We're really manipulating and changing the way that animal utilizes that feed. And that can actually have some long-term impact on their overall health. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. That's one of the things that I've thought about recently and, and have become interested in is this idea of how do we characterize um, the microbiome? And and I think that we need to do more than just characterizing in a family or as some would say, enterotype. Um, you know, any anyone, uh, well, we all come from families and we all recognize how different we are, one sibling to another or parents to children, let alone more distant relatives. So to try and just say that we're going to characterize the family and then trying to characterize the microbiome is probably not uh, sufficient. We're going to have to find ways where we can more cost effectively and more rapidly characterize uh, the the species, at least the genus, and if not the species of interest. Um, and uh, to go from there to get to get really serious about about trying to characterize and and be more prescriptive in how we apply this uh, this stuff um any thoughts about the idea you know as we characterize this some people will shrug and say and i think justifiably today they'll they'll shrug and say so what you know so you've characterized this but at the end of the day i'm still going to do a lysine dose curve or i'm going to do a distillers um you know dose um, titration trial and i'm going to look at what that population does and we're going to go from there and I'm not really too worried about how many different families or whatever else I have. Um, how would you how would you answer that? That saying, okay, we do need to characterize the microbiome and and understand this, even in these more applied trials. I think that's a great question, and, and the veterinarians will love me, right? Because anytime anytime we change what we're doing, we have the potential to create disease and we look at the lysine trials and think, oh, it's just, maybe we're just adding synthetic lysine and we wouldn't necessarily expect a change and maybe we don't see a change. But again, without doing that data, without collecting it and really understanding it, we can't start checking off the box and saying, okay, well, if we add this ingredient, we know we're not going to change the positive things that we have going on in this herd. Um, we know if we change this, we have the potential to shift that microbiome where we might have complications. And I'm not saying that it's it's an automatic, right? But what I'm trying to say is we might just shift it enough so that when the piglets have something that happens, some stress event, maybe we pick them up and, and tattoo them or give them their iron shots and it, it's just enough to trigger some of that dysbiosis, they're already set up for it, right? Um, other things to think about that I really wanna challenge us on is, is let's go back to Maria Peter's work with the ruminococcus. If we know we're taking animals out of a sow farm and we're putting them into a population where we have mycoplasma, why wouldn't we nutritionally feed those sows so that those offspring have higher levels of ruminococcus? Yeah, to maximize the ruminococcus in that population. Absolutely. Right. right. So it's not all bad, right? And that's why I say the veterinarians are going to love me because I'm telling them they can blame feed for once, right? Um, <laughs> but 
But that's really what I'm trying to get at is that we have the opportunity to think about how we can manipulate things to be a positive in the long run and really influence livability of the animal. Well, you take that with Maria's work with mycoplasma and then you and then to flip it a little bit on its head, maybe look at some of the nutrition work that's been done on intact proteins versus synthetic amino acids and respiratory virus susceptibility, especially PERS virus. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, it's, we missed a trick in that by not characterizing the microbiome changes when, when that research was done because we're obviously manipulating the microbiome, we're manipulating the immune transfer, um, and it would not be surprising at all to me to come back to that that we were not only manipulate that we could have very easily manipulated um, a, a variety of transfer mechanisms, including the enteromammary transfer pathway. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and it's it's a great point, and it's in fact something we're doing here with our students, is or at least my students. So, anytime we run a study, we tend to take fecal samples, and if we're necropsying pigs, we're taking. Um, mucosal samples as well, and we're freezing them back so that we have the opportunity to start to look at maybe some of those more applied studies and say, well, what did, what did we really do? What really happened here? Uh, because again, we don't know. And um, once we learn, it, it makes it a lot easier to figure it out. I kind of start to think of it a little bit like an iodine value, perhaps. You know, we assign a value to our ingredients and how that might influence total iodine value in our fat. It won't look quite the same, right? But we might have a, an idea of what we want to do to the feed to potentially shift things around. Yeah, yeah. And so then, yeah, back to your, uh, when we look at shifting feed around and we look at probiotics, you know, all of a sudden then you you start to look at, and, and this is where it's going to take some expertise because you can't just give every ingredient, for example, a ruminococcus score. And, you know, you're going, this is where it's going to take expertise and training for people to look at this and say, well, based upon, you know, the composition of the diet, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to have to change, you know, which probiotic I start with or or what my rotation is. Uh, I mean, I look at it something as simple as, you know, right now, when we look at the level of distillers in a diet, we we then start making calculations in our mind about what our tryptophan to lysine ratio is going to be. Correct. And and I look at this as something very similar to that. So with that in mind, where is the balance then in your applied research? Uh, because we can't we can't sample everything, and we can't you know we can sample everything. We just can't afford to analyze it, and right. and and all of a sudden these these trials get so cost prohibitive that nobody can do them. Where is the balance between the the cost of the microbiome work that needs to be done within these applied trials? Um, how do, how do we find that balance? Cause it will add cost to what we're doing going forward. Absolutely. So I'm going to be a little bit, um, guarded on this answer, but the reality of it is, is I don't think we're ready yet to be doing this in applied research trials. I don't think we have a really good handle yet on what healthy looks like. And what normal looks like and yep. i'm doing this with some other projects as well where it's really important for us to understand what's what's real and what's there before we jump in and start trying to manipulate we don't fully understand and i had a, an individual last week i was talking to them about this project that was funded by iowa pork and doing the fecal transplant work and 
And they're like, you know, you could be bringing bad in with the good. And it's like, yes, I know that, you know, same when we do per serum uh, exposures and those types of things, we always have that potential. And so we really need to first understand what's good, what's the balance, and then we can start going into the applied research. So as much as I would love to be collecting on everything, and I told you we should, uh, the, the honest answer is we're not quite ready to do that. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And from a, an applied perspective, one of the things that's happening now, you and I know in human nutrition is, is that there's a number of for-profit organizations that have run out there and and tried to stake their claim on helping people characterize their individual microbiome and, and make recommendations. And they're receiving a lot of justifiable criticism, and in some cases, some scorn, because the work that they're doing is not providing value to the end user. And I don't want this, I'd really like this to be something that develops, like you said, that, that we step through it in a uh, coherent fashion and in an organized way so that it provides value to the end user because it is critical and I don't want it to be lost just because people rush to commercialize it and are commercializing something they don't understand. Um, yeah, so this is, I think this is very, very interesting. This idea of, of uh, all of these different pathways and, and just how the microbiome is communicating, not only within an animal, but between animals, um, you know, the work that uh, Jason Ross and some of your other colleagues have done that you've, I know you've been involved in at least peripherally with the, the um, uh, prolapse uh, sow issue and some of the microbiome work that they're doing there. So, um, so then I, I guess the, the question is, is as you take this work forward and you look at the work you're doing with the microbiome and the, and the, and the transfer, maybe what are some of your final thoughts on the enteral mammary transfer um how we can how we can apply this or how we ought to be you know what what should we think about this now and and what should we what should we be looking for going forward especially when this is listened to by people who are trying to um make decisions every day out at the farm i think you ask a great question joe and, and you bring up a good point right so so Jason Ross's team has looked at prolapses. Uh, we have some other work where we're looking at galactia, but looking at the vaginal microbiome there. Um, and then of course we have the enteromammary work that, that we're doing. And then of course, many others are doing other fecal microbiome uh, evaluations and, and trying to understand those interactions. And it is such a complex organism in itself, right? All of these microbiomes in all these different locations can influence the ultimate health of these animals. And so what I would tell our production folks and, and the people who are listening out there today is, you know, understand that we're working on it. We're trying to better understand what's happening. Uh, we know, you know we're identifying today those organisms that have potential value. We need to just do a little bit better job of trying to understand um, what we're ultimately doing. I think the production staff, they have some good information today. You know, certainly we know when there's a hyodysentery dysentery issue going on, what to feed and what not to feed, or, you know, brachiospira outbreak or those types of things. And so continue to use that information as we build kind of this background library, if you will, 
of what's really going on within that animal so that we can you know later give you those steps and so it's kind of a hold on to your hats you know give us a few more years to really get a good idea as to what's going on but use the information that you have today you know if you want to implement probiotics do it selectively make sure you're you're working with companies that are willing to help you do some screening on that microbiome to better understand what's going to be a fit and what's not going to be a fit or you know at least you know, really understanding what organisms you're trying to get rid of in terms of an E. coli issue. Um, so, you know, looking forward, that's where I see that we're going to be. In terms of the basic research here and, and elsewhere, you know, we're going to continue to try to understand what does a normal population look like? When that is out of balance, what does that potentially cause with the animal? So then ultimately what we can do is come up with a basis and say, well, this is the profile we want these animals to have or we believe is the most beneficial and hopefully have that for different situations, right? So if we have a mycoplasma infection, we can tell you you need more ruminococcus. If we have a herd that's having hemolytic E. coli issues, maybe it's you know, something in the Firmicutes uh, family that we need to go after. And so, you know, hopefully in a few years, we'll be able to have that information for you. But um, for the production folks, continue to use the knowledge that you have, continue to build on it. And hopefully today we gave you a few things to think about in terms of identifying potential shifts in the microbiome in the herd, maybe deciding how to use probiotics a little bit differently. Maybe it's a rotational basis or something of that nature to try to, in the meantime, keep your herd as healthy as possible. Yeah, yeah, that, I I appreciate that. The other the other thought that comes to me to mind as well is, is it also emphasizes just how critical it is to keep your herd health profile in your sow herd stable. Mm -hmm. And and so you mentioned some of these potential probiotics in the future that are heavy on the ruminococcus or maybe a, a different combination as, as some people use these uh, symbiotics that there's some you know symbiosis between different prebiotics and probiotics and lots of future applications. But it's all about keeping that herd health profile stable because when that profile is stable, then that sow is better able to provide that, um, that immune transfer and that microbiome transfer most effectively to that pig for the long-term benefit of the herd and the stability of that herd. So um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about where we've been, uh, where we're going, um, the things that we're learning about how critical it is to manage that sow and the sow herd health and nutrition uh, very holistically. Um, and, and, you know, it's it's things as simple as what we've done in the past with weaning age and where we're looking at with, you know, intact proteins versus synthetic amino acids and sow diets and and um, all of these things. And, and so this is exciting to think about this and think about trying to manipulate the enteromammary transfer for the benefit of these animals and, and everything going forward. Mm -hmm. um, so this kind of brings us to the end of our conversation today, but if someone wanted to visit with you more about this topic, um, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Oh, absolutely. If anybody would like to visit or um, you're welcome to email me. My email address here is grinerl at iowastate.edu or iastate.edu. Um, or you can always uh, call me. So if you look my name up at Iowa State University, you can find my phone number as well as my email address there on our directory. And so certainly feel free to reach out to me. We can visit more. Uh, we can have some good conversations and, and keep trying to move this area forward. 
Very good, very good. Well, Laura, thank you again very much. I appreciate your time and and uh, look forward to uh, many future conversations on this over the years as this this develops. This is what we don't know is a lot bigger than what we know, and it's really pretty exciting to be a part of it. So absolutely. Well, thank you, Joe, again for having me on. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to visit with everyone today. Thank you for joining us today. For additional information on Filio's swine programs, products, and recommendations, and research data regarding our work with the microbiome, animal performance, and well-being, please visit our website at filio-lasaf.com. Keep listening to future podcasts to learn more about the pig microbiome and research frontiers with gut physiology and the microbiome, or reach out to us directly through the website. Thank you, and have a great day.